Just because things don't go as we've planned doesn't mean Providence isn't still overseeing it all. That can be hard to believe, but it was true for Swedenborg when his plans to print true Christianity in Paris didn't work out the way he'd hoped, and it's true for us too. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. This week, Curtis and I hear what 12 newcomers to the afterlife believe about life after death who don't even realize that they've already died. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose gains insight into why angels love learning about Jesus. Then we travel to 1769, when Swedenborg was in Paris and had to make a tough choice this week in history. All right, here we are for our spirit story. Hey, Curtis. Hey, excited to to get back into the story. Yeah, and you're such a good sport being willing to go on these adventures, not knowing anything of what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> oh, I'm just I'm just so glad someone asked me to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get a lot of those. So. You're always welcome here. So we are doing act two. We're in act two of a spirit story this week. So as a little catch up for anybody who maybe didn't listen last week or it's already been a week, you can't remember. We met up with Swedenborg where he was hanging out with some angels in the world of spirits. And he first he's talking to them about some stars um, in the universe. And then they see this crowd of people in this long sort of line on this street. And they're heading to the center of the world of spirits. And that's where he says, this is the path that, you know, people who are newcomers to the afterlife take where they wake up from the afterlife. And then from that center point, then decide what they're going to do next. And I remember now. Yep. Yes. All right. The memory's been jogged. So Swedenborg and the angels decide to run this little experiment where they're going to do some research by tapping on the shoulders of several of these people and asking them, what do you believe about life after death? But the funny twist is that Swedenborg and the angels know that all these people have died, but they know that the people are in this state before they've reached full consciousness in the spiritual world so that they don't know that they've actually died yet. Yeah. Is that the definition of a double blind experiment or something like that? (laughs) Just about. (laughs) Um, Spiritually blind experiment. And they randomly choose 12 people. And we're going to see what these 12 people say in act two right now. And it's a bit of a long one, but I'm, here's this thought I'm having, Curtis, where you can, uh, as we go through, because we're going to hear what each of these people believe about heaven and hell and life after death. And so you pay attention and decide to rate, like, how many points do you give them for their belief? Yes, <laughs> okay. I, I relish the chance to rate people. Here we go. Act two. We asked them what they believed about heaven and hell and life after death. One of them replied, Our sacred order impressed on me the belief that we are going to live after death and that there is a heaven and a hell. As a result, I came to believe that all who live morally go to heaven. And since everyone lives morally, no one goes to hell. Therefore, hell is a myth made up by the clergy to prevent us from living evil lives. What difference does it make if I think about God this way or that way? Thought is only foam on the water that bursts and disappears. What's the scale out of? Ten? I don't know. You're just going to have to start with a scale, and then we'll go I'm, from there. <laughs> I'm going to give this uh, a four 
and a half out of 10. Okay, Because uh, there was some good stuff. Hey, we live after death. Check. There's heaven. There's hell. Check. It started to fall apart when you used this word morally, but then made it have no definition. Every, yes. Everyone lives morally. Then define define what morally is to you. Uh, there must right. be some backstory in there, but he, he or she didn't clearly articulate it. And also, it it's nice, like just from if you had the traditional idea, concept of heaven, it would be nice to think, yeah, God can just pull everyone into heaven. But with Swedenborg's definition of heaven and hell being the pleasures in opposite things, hell being the pleasure in harmful hey, things. which we just learned, right? You can't, you can't do that. You can't just say people who enjoy harmful things can be in the pleasure of good things. No, that would be this weird mess. So I'm, I, I've got to give it a four and a half. All right. It's kind of a low one. Okay. Another near the first said, my belief is that heaven and hell exist. God rules heaven and the devil rules hell because they are enemies and are opposed to each other. One calls evil what the other calls good. Moral people are phonies who can make evil look good and good look evil. They stand on both sides. What is the difference than whether I am with one Lord or the other provided he likes me? People enjoy good and evil equally. (laughs) <laughs> okay, some points. Oh, let's see. Let's, let's give this one. I give this one a three because it's it's sort of just punting the question. I it's some points for cynicism, just like naked cynicism yes. there, <laughs> and and this uh, sort of ni- moral nihilism. But I don't. I'm not buying that. There's there's nobody genuine, and that there's not. A difference between good and evil. Well, you obviously haven't been on the receiving end of both. If you're if you're just talking go. about the joy, so no, I, I you can't pass with that. All right, we're going. We're, so we're, we've sunk a little bit further. Here we go. A third person at the side of the second said, "What difference does it make to my situation if I believe that heaven and hell exist? Who has come from there and told us? If everyone lives after death, why hasn't one person out of that great multitude come back to tell us about it?" Okay, one. <laughs> I hate it when people say that because the people that say that also say, well, I don't believe people who talk about near-death experiences. Um, yes, right? right. Yes. Yeah. So the, why didn't anyone, well, that's the, that person didn't really have the experience or say they're having, I just can't picture what you're, you're imagining like a, a spirit that, anyway, I don't need to get caught up in that. I'm gonna, just going to give you a one. And I don't know okay. if I'm like Simon Cowell here or if there's some better ones ahead, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid to say we're things things I don't know if anything's gonna get above a five. We'll see. Okay. So the fourth person next to the third said, I'll tell you why no one has come back to tell us about it. The reason is that when we breathe our souls out, we are in fact dead. Then we become a ghost and we are dissipated. Or we are like the breath in someone's mouth, which is only blowing air. How can something like that come back and talk to anyone? Zero. <laughs> okay, zero. <laughs> Yeah, missed, I don't know. Yeah, do we get boat. to go in the negatives? We'll see. <laughs> you missed it. Uh, yeah. Yep. A fifth person went next and said, Friends, wait for the day of the last judgment. Then all will return to their bodies, and you will see them and talk with them. Each one will tell his or her fate to the next. This person oh. sounds genuine, so I'll yeah, give him a four. A little... um, sure. There you go. All right. 
The sixth, standing on the other side, started laughing and said, How could a spirit, which has blown air, come back into a body that has been consumed by worms and into a skeleton that has been burnt in the sun and has crumbled to dust? How can an Egyptian who was turned into a mummy and who has since been mixed by an apothecary into extracts, powders, ointments, and pills come back and tell anyone anything? Wait for that last day if you have the faith, but you're going to wait forever and ever for nothing. <laughs> well, pro- props to talking about eating mummies and being snarky, but I didn't hear you offer an explanation of the afterlife, so I'll give you a two. That's right. All right, a two. After that, the seventh one said, if I believed in heaven and hell and life after death, I would also believe that birds and animals are going to live on as well, since some of them are just as moral and rational as we are. People say animals don't live on, so I say people don't either. It is a fair piece of reasoning. The one point follows from the other. What are we except animals? I'll give that, well, I'll give that a six, a six and a half, because it's Ooh. like there's ethics behind it. I mean, you see animals and they seem like they're good and everything. So I, I think there's some, some real thought there. All right. The eighth one, standing behind the seventh one's back, came forward and said, believe in heaven if you want. But I don't believe in hell. God is omnipotent. He can save everyone. No, I'll give that. Man, I'll give that a seven. Because you think, right? The ninth shook the eighth one's hand and said, God is not only omnipotent, but also gracious. He could throw anyone into eternal fire. If any were already in the fire, he would set them free and take them away from there. It's five because you're just riding on the coattails of the seven. Right. (laughs) The tenth rushed from the line into the middle and said, I don't believe in hell either. God sent us his son, and the son bore the sins of the whole world and purged them. What is the devil capable of doing against that? Since he can't do anything, what then is hell? Yeah, um, four. Uninspired. (laughs) The eleventh, who was a priest, became very angry when he heard that and said, The people who are saved are those who have acquired the faith on which Christ's merit has been inscribed. Those whom God has chosen acquire that faith. It is up to the Almighty and His judgment to choose who is worthy. Who could argue against that? Everything's so obscure compared yes. to like, what do you love? It's it's not hey, if you can't ooh. explain it. Explain it to a six-year-old. It, you can just see it, when they're sitting there, living and breathing, uh, that how like, wooden and cardboard and small these ideas are. I don't know what I rate that one, but not great. That's great. All right, now here we are, the last one. The twelfth, who was in politics, remained silent. Asked to give the final response, he said, I will not express from my heart anything about heaven, hell, or the life after death. No one knows anything about them. Nonetheless, provided the priests do not insult anyone, let them preach those things, because commoners are then held mentally bound to laws and to leaders by an invisible chain. Public safety depends on this, does it not? (laughs) Ten. (laughs) Stop. <laughs> he's the only one who's being honest where he's saying I'm not going to express from my heart anything about this you know whereas yeah. just like what you said kind of all the rest are kind of that way too cardboardy so we were stunned to hear their points of view we said to each other although these people are called Christians they are neither human nor animal they are human animals <laughs> is that the end of the story? <laughs> that's the end of our story for this week well, you know, Swedenborg in other areas says, the reason that I was allowed to see heaven and hell is nobody knows what's going on with the afterlife. And yes. if this is a, a sampling of the opinions within 
the Christian world where Swedenborg is asserting some of the barest truths about the life after death should exist. Yeah, it's not just that people don't, I didn't find the right thing, but that they're not even looking in the right places. They're down some weird theological corridor or they have basic moral objections that no one supplied an answer to, which you can't when you don't understand that hell and heaven are the things that you enjoy. Of course, you'd think, well, why can't God just bring it? If you think right. of hell as punishment, of course, God should not put you there just to punish you out of revenge. So it does seem like there's either a lack of will or a lack of the basic tools needed to really get people pondering the afterlife. And like our friend in the previous story uh, got this laurel wreath or something for pondering the afterlife. We got to equip people to be able to get their wreaths or else it's not fair. I know. Oh, that's so interesting. So yeah, I can only imagine for Swedenborg and the angels that, you know, after witnessing so much basically yeah, like ignorance about the afterlife and sort of convoluted thinking they you know they're not just gonna let let the conversation end there i'm sure they're gonna you know what are they gonna do next to are they gonna help these 12 people understand heaven and hell better we're we're gonna have to find out next time can't wait i look forward to exploring that with you and for everyone listening you can Catch a new News from Heaven tomorrow on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel at our new time, 8 p.m. Eastern. And so I am looking forward to catching up with you at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. And first, I'll stop by the desk of the NCE to pick up our buddy, Jonathan Rose. Sounds great. Hey, Jonathan, how are you doing? Doing well. I couldn't help uh, hearing you guys laughing a little bit in the office across the way, so <laughs> put my ear to the door a little bit, and it was a very interesting conversation you were having about different views and how sort of cogent they are. Yes. And it happened to fit very well with what I've been editing today and in the last number of days, um, because Swedenborg is often finding himself in the situation of having to explain to people things that they're not at all interested in, <laughs> but should be. And I think that's exactly what we're on the brink of for our next, you know, for next week's act three of this spirit story is what is Swedenborg going to say to these people? That's so, right. Uh... So I've got three quotations and then I have a thought about them. And they're all on a similar theme about, because what Swedenborg's explaining is a lot of detail about how the mind of Jesus changed over time, like what happened. Hmm. Particularly, what I've been editing lately is how his rational faculty developed and the changes that it went through the sort of blind alleys that he decided not to go down, and then he oh, went a different wow. way and all this. And so Swedenborg, three times in this in this area, has to say, uh, look, you all may not be interested in this, but angels are fascinated. <laughs> so here's one of those. 
In its inner sense, then, the current chapter has a great deal of description concerning the Lord's state of thought and perception, and in the early verses concerning the state of the union between his humanity and divinity. In the eyes of a person on earth, to be sure, this may not seem very important, Mm. but it is extremely important nevertheless. To the eyes of angels, whose holy word is the inner meaning, these subjects are vividly presented with exquisite beauty in representative scenes. Mm. So are countless other concepts that follow on the heels of these subjects and bear a resemblance to them. Concepts involving the Lord's bond with heaven and the way angels receive his divinity in their humanity. I thought that was a pretty striking phrase at the end there because he talks Mm. a lot about how what was divine and what was human in Jesus came to be one. That's really, that's what the secret of heaven is, is that Genesis Uh and Exodus are all about that, (laughs) to give it away, you know, spoiler alert. Here's another such passage. That, by the way, was 2249. Thank you. And this next one is 2540. When angels think of the Lord's life in the world, they think about the way he rid himself of human rationality and made it divine by his own power, not to mention many other subjects that they consider are central to religion and to humankind Hmm. and that branch off from these. To us humans who pour all our care and concern into worldly and bodily interests. (laughs) These topics seem trivial and maybe even perfectly useless. To angels, though, who pour all their care and concern into heavenly and spiritual interests, they are valuable. Mm. So I thought that was really interesting. And you do think about the kind of things that uh, that light us up or what, like, oh, you know, I got some more money put aside into my retirement or I figured out a way to, you know, save some money on the electric bill or something. And it's like, it's not what angels are thinking about. Uh, here's a third such passage. This one's from 2551 in Secrets of Heaven. The word's inner meaning is designed especially for angels. So it is suited to their perceptions and thoughts. They are in their element and, in fact, in a state of bliss and happiness when they're thinking about the Lord, his divinity and humanity, and the way his humanity was made divine. They are surrounded by a heavenly and spiritual atmosphere that is full of the Lord so that they can be said to be in the Lord. Nothing, therefore, is more blissful or happier for them than to think thoughts that fit with both that atmosphere they enjoy and the feelings arising from it. Mm. At the same time, they also receive instruction and perfect their knowledge. So what that got me thinking about, the thought that that sparked in my head, because he does come back to that refrain over and over. The thought that it sparked in my head was that I can see how people might roll their eyes at the idea of like, I don't even know how my own brain works. I have no idea why I think what I think or feel what I feel. How can I possibly get interested 
and whether this particular facet of this particular level of Jesus's mind when he was fairly young <laughs> did this or that, you know, there's yep. only one thing you need to know about Jesus, and that's it. <laughs> you know? Right. He saves, uh, you know, forget the rest. And um, and so Swedenborg's trying, it's like, well, this is my job. I got to tell you what this chapter means. And what it means is it's all about the rationality and how it developed and all that. But I started thinking, mm. hey, if you're a therapist, if you're a teacher, if you're a trainer, if you're a life coach, all kinds of things, don't you have to have some kind of paradigm in your mind of what perfection looks like, or at least here's a goal, here's a desired outcome, mm -hmm. and then how to measure that compared to where you find the person you're trying to help and how to get them from here to there. What mm -hmm. else are angels doing all day? They're trying to help us. They're trying to help spirits in the world of spirits. They're trying to improve everybody around them. That's what they do for a living. And so having this beautiful model of somebody, one person, Jesus, who actually did it right, can't be said of any of the rest of us, but there was one person who actually nailed it. Mm -hmm. And being able to see that perfect routine and learn every detail of it, analyze it endlessly the way we might analyze a football game or a gymnastics performance or swimming or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. And then come back and say, okay, if you want to get to that level, here's what you need to do. So it may just go right over our heads. We, we don't understand it. We don't get joy out of it. We can't wait to get on to another topic. But to the <laughs> angels, they are just absolutely thrilled to see what this perfect life, what this, um, how you got to the point of having a perfect mind. How did that happen? Mm, that's great. And it makes me think of just, yeah, how essential it is for people to have mentors. You know, people always talk about that, like how powerful it is to have a representation of themselves, you know, that, or just of what they're after. Somebody, you know, it's like having a woman vice president, like having that happen is like, wow, that's possible. Seeing that gives you such a different level of what's possible, you know, so how right. critical that is to, even if that potential is inside of anybody, to see it and be able to consider it or even learn directly from somebody who who is a mentor, you know, who's doing the thing that you want to do and that you love to do or something, then uh, that brings so much empowerment and clarity, you know, and is so encouraging. So it's really cool to think of that being the way it's working for angels where like what they want, which even, of course, is coming from the Lord's love anyway, but sort of they're experiencing that of they really feel passionate about these things. And then to like have that living example, like that's the way. Uh, here's somebody who's done it, you know, they can draw just infinite insight and encouragement from that. Yeah, they keep deepening in their understanding uh, moving forward. So now they, they see it a little more clearly. 
And one of the things that Swedenborg says a number of times is that the more that people on earth can be thinking the kinds of thoughts that angels have or sharing some of those values, the more heaven can come on earth mm-hmm. and heaven and earth can get together. Um, and so he's kind of fighting uphill, but he wants to say, hey, for a few hours, don't think about the checkbook or the, you know, or sports or whatever, and 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 think about this because angels love it. That is so great. I love that. It's definitely been a a carrot for me in my journey. Is those little bits that Swedenborg will say because it just, of course, you want to, you know, be like angels, or you're so interested in this whole idea of what are the what are the angels interested in? I'll go do that. You know, even if it's positive peer pressure, you know. Or Something. Right. <laughs> it's encouraging. <laughs> wow. Well, what a cool, fascinating insight to get from your, uh, you know, hot off your brain press, hot off the editing press. <laughs> it is. It was literally this morning. Wow. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. And will you come with me now to join up with Curtis to see where Swedenborg was this week in history? I'd be delighted. All right, here we go. Hey, Curtis and Jonathan. Hello. Hey there. So this week, we are going back to 1769. And for anyone who's maybe been listening with us, they know that last week we were in 1768, when Swedenborg was leaving Stockholm to go to Amsterdam to print his work, Marriage Love. And now this is a year and a week later, and Swedenborg is in Paris. So what is he doing in Paris? One thing we know for sure is that he is sort of shopping around a draft of true Christianity because he's wanting to see if he can get it published in France. And we have a letter from Swedenborg to his good friend, the Reverend Dr. Beyer, from April of 1769, where he mentions not only marriage love, which will be interesting to hear about, you know, a year later after he went and published it, but also tells him of his plans to go to Paris. So I want to read you this letter to give you, for the context it gives us about this trip. Okay? Great. So, Reverend Doctor, he says, I herewith send you 10 copies of the published treatise on conjugal love, which, when an opportunity offers you, you may sell at nine copper dollars per copy. And the book is very much in demand in Paris and in many places in Germany. So that's interesting that he knows that there's this demand in Paris, and now he's kind of on his way there. But he mentions this uh, book that he recently published that in the New Century edition is titled Survey. But here's what he says. Of the work last published, entitled A Brief Exposition of the Doctrine of the New Jerusalem, I sent you only one copy, which you will please to keep for yourself alone and not communicate to anyone else, for it will cause a change in the whole of that theology which has up to the present time prevailed in Christendom and partly sets forth also that theology which will be for the new church. What is written therein will be thoroughly understood by scarcely anyone in Gothenburg except yourself. And 
So that brief exposition or survey, we actually mentioned it in an earlier podcast episode because he is he intended to get true Christianity out faster than he did. And he uh, so he decides to print this short work survey that's kind of like a um, condensed version of true Christianity, basically, um, before he actually prints sort of the full work of true Christianity. And so here's how the letter ends. He says, this little work, meaning brief exposition, has been sent to all professors and clergymen in Holland and has already reached the principal universities in Germany. It is being translated into English in London and will also be published in Paris. We must therefore wait for the judgment which is passed upon it abroad before it is generally made known in Sweden. You will therefore keep it for the present for yourself alone. On April 26th, I shall leave for Paris, and I remain, with loving friendship, your most obedient servant and faithful friend, Emanuel Swedenborg. So he's got plans. He's going to Paris because he wants to publish. Not only he says this little work survey is going to be published in Paris, but he's actually trying to get True Christianity published there too. And a little snafu is that neither of them get published in Paris. So things don't go the way that he planned or the way that he anticipated. And we know this because in the preface to a French translation of Sweden of True Christianity, which Swedenborg does eventually publish, there is this note. I'll read it to you. So it says, Swedenborg came to Paris in 1769. He tried to get his true Christian religion printed there. But in order to do so, he had to get the permission of the censor of books, Monsieur Chevreuil, who was then royal censor and doctor of the Sorbonne, was instructed to examine it and after reading it, said that he would receive a tacit permission, provided the title page, as was usual, declared that the book was printed either in London or Amsterdam. But Swedenborg, influenced by a rare delicacy, which was due to his principles, would not consent to it, and the book was not printed in France. This anecdote, which had not been previously known, was communicated to one of the editors by Monsieur Chevreuil himself. So that gives us this little fascinating window into Swedenborg talking to that censor of books Chevroy, who I'm trying to pronounce correctly, and it's Chevret. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> um, and it not working out, and even this interesting thing of like, well, you could print it here, but you're not allowed to say that it was printed here. Um, so, what's your take, Jonathan? Well, several things are really interesting about that to me. One is just how busy he has been. He's 81 years old by this point. Yeah. He just published uh, Marriage Love, as you said, and then in uh, early February in 1769, yes. he published a survey. And he's at some point uh, by July or August going to write a uh, soul body interaction and publish that in London. And it stands to reason to me that for a censor to sign off on a book that it's okay to publish it, yeah, you can't just hand them the first chapter and say, blah, 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 says other things. Right. I think he must have an entire draft of the work 
or else how could the censor say yay or nay to it? And it's interesting why he would want, I have no idea why he wanted to depart from his longstanding practice of publishing yeah. in London and Amsterdam. Why was he trying to reach a different market? I don't know what he was doing. But uh, if it were not for that one little anecdote, we would have no idea uh, what went on in Paris there. But it's really interesting that the censor himself told this kind of story, like I tried to get him to do something shady and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he's, uh, it's, he's admitting It's kind to of it. amazing. <laughs> yeah, and that I, it's interesting in that letter to Bayer that he says, marriage love is in high demand in Paris. Like, I wonder if he's kind of, well, hey, it's getting some tread over here. I'm going to go to France and print my next book, you know, or I, it's really hard to say. Yeah, um, maybe he's following the, the sense of where the market's hot. Yeah. That letter to Bayer was, there was a lot of moving and shaking in there. This mm-hmm. book has high demand. This book's getting printed over here. I'm on the move. It really seemed like he was trying to create some energy around it and, and telling Bayer on two, for two different books, look, here, here this is, but don't tell anyone about it. You know, <laughs> it just, <laughs> just has a very distinct, like, stuff is going on vibe. And he's right, too, because uh, it's right around this same time that his, like, here he is about to be publishing True Christianity, and he's printed this book, Survey, and he says, oh, this is going to kind of rock rock the foundation of Christendom. And in Sweden especially, there's this stir going on where, um, what is it, Ekbom, this a Swedish bishop, he attacks Swedenborg's works and... And so they're already starting to get some flack over there. And so it's sort of like, well, just wait. You haven't even seen, you know, there's more coming. <laughs> you know, and he's, he's preparing. He's getting it all ready. Which you wonder how that influenced his idea of like, should I go get this work actually printed in France? You know, other than the London and Amsterdam where he usually goes. Yeah. And, and how about that Swedenborg's refusal to get it published in Paris and... And lie about where it was published. <laughs> and do, do, do a little fib. I wonder, is that just, so does he, because I want to peer into Swedenborg's mind. Does he feel like, oh, I have to, I have to correspond. You know, I can't, I can't say, ha, have something that's false, you know, on the front of a true book. Yeah. Or is it, was his whole, I was going to say, did he want it shown that it was published in Paris, that that's why it'd be worth going to the trouble of getting it published there. That would give mm. some advantage. But it's interesting that that censor says it was because of his delicate sensibilities or whatever the phrase was. Right. So it's, and his principles. Yeah. It, that, but that's, look, I'm, I'm trying to glean, yeah, how did Swedenborg live? What did all this information distill into him? So for him to say, no, I'm not going to, even though it's it may just be a law that is seems like it's it's merely procedural, I don't want to break it. And that raises an interesting angle I never thought about before, Curtis, that the um, maybe he really did want Paris on the title page. It, it seems that he was disappointed when he published his early theological works in London and then did not get a rise out of the British as a result. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he was trying to hit the home market there, and it does no good to you know, to not even say Paris on there, you know. Right, right. And so if it doesn't have enough credibility, 
for a true endorsement, this sort of half-hearted endorsement from the French censor of books, it's like, no, I, I can get this published in Amsterdam. But just look at the way he's writing to Bayer. He's saying, look, this is it's. they're interested in it over here. They're interested in it over here. I'm sure as he's looking at Sweden and the brewing storm there, it would really help to be able to say, oh, I've been published in Amsterdam and London and Paris. I, right. This is something. You can't just discount this. He did say that kind of thing in, in letters of that, in other letters of that time period that um, when they wouldn't allow for a while there, they would not allow marriage love to be imported into Sweden. They banned its importation. And he said, well, whatever, but it's popular in Europe. And he lists the different countries where it's doing well. Yeah. And clearly the it was his plan to publish it. Like it going along with what you're saying about like getting into the mind of Swedenborg is he writes to Bayer in his way that he we often run into where he's like, well, this is what I'm doing next. You know, survey is going to get published there. And and then we know he's trying to, you know, uh, get true Christianity published there as well. And he's like, that's the plan. And then that's not the way it happens. You know, so he can have he can be planning that this is what would be the best for, you know, the the works or, you know, his whole strategy and everything. And yet, like any of us, he kind of just has to let it go because it's like, well, nope, this is this is a dead end. It's not happening here. So he kind of regroups and decides to go back to Amsterdam, like has to leave it, leave it up to Providence. This is neither here nor there, but I'm just remembering that um, Swedenborg did in the uh, introduction to the Shorter Works of 1763, there's an appendix at the back about Swedenborg's distribution. And I remember that the French Cardinal de Rohan was one of the recipients of his books. So that's a pretty highly placed, you know, member of the Catholic leadership that he was sending his books to. So I wonder if there is more of a French story than we know. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Curtis. It is always a pleasure to talk to you both. Thanks for having us. Good fun. We close out each episode of the podcast with a Swedenborg-inspired song. If you have a Swedenborg-inspired song you'd like us to share, you can email us at offthelefteye at gmail.com. You can submit your song that way, and if you give us permission, we would love to showcase your Swedenborg-inspired music. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You're the best audience a podcast could ever have, so thank you for listening. Subscribe to the podcast to never miss when a new episode comes out, and consider supporting our work with a donation. Go to offthelefteye.com donate. Anything you give helps make the quality and impact of the work we do possible. So for this week, the song we're sharing is Confident Hope. That's the eponymous track of the album I produced a couple of years ago, and it's a fitting one to follow last week's song, which was by Jonathan, that track On The Move from Clear Shining After Rain, because this one continues the theme of the second coming, which really is such a big theme in all of Swedenborg's works. And when I was writing this song, it was really a meditation on how we personally experience the second coming, and really that that's something that is this ongoing process of awakening that we cycle through, really, as we're going through our spiritual growth. So it's a spiritual pick-me-up track for when we're feeling down or stuck, 
helping us to trust that God is on our side, and we've even got angels rooting for us always. So I'm Chelsea Odner, and I look forward to being with you next time we're inside Off the Left Eye. But until then, here's confident hope. Enjoy the music. <laughs>